Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to the Humble Skeptic Podcast. Have you ever been to a museum with famous works of art? If so, have you ever wondered whether any of the paintings on display there were authentic or just really good forgeries? As I ask myself this question about the last museum I visited, I don't recall ever questioning the authenticity or genuineness of any of the paintings I saw, and I think this has something to do with the faith that I placed in the museum itself. I simply trusted that they had already examined each of the paintings carefully, so that a visitor like me wouldn't question whether the Monet I was staring at really was a Monet. Now let me ask you another question. If a friend took you to a meeting with a private seller who claimed that he had in his possession a lost work of Monet that he was willing to sell for a very reasonable price, would you have any questions about this painting's authenticity? Well, if you're anything like me, you probably would because there are a lot of forgeries out there and you wouldn't want your friend to get ripped off. And it certainly wouldn't help if this particular friend said something to the effect that he knew the painting was the real McCoy because he had a gut feeling about it. If a friend told me that, I would definitely try to talk some sense into him by recommending that he have the artwork appraised before he agreed to the purchase. But how could the appraisers themselves tell if a given work is authentic or not? The art world, where paintings change hands for fortunes. So, thank you very much. But not every painting is quite what it seems. Gosh, why didn't I notice that before? We use old-fashioned detective work and state-of-the-art science to get to the truth. Science can enable us to see beyond the human eye. We draw together the worlds of art and forensic science. Authenticity. 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 In our field, that's quite an interesting area. When you have verification that it's genuine in the most basic way. We're also looking at originality of the piece, if anything has been altered. Taking the painting out 
Now we're going to take that and have a look down the microscope. Straight away we can see that it's, it's very yellowed looking and this is typical of forgeries because you want the object to look old and if you just paint it in nice fresh bright colors it's going to look new. There's no obvious cracking and yes uh, we've got an obvious fake patina you see it right away. We use neutrons to irradiate the painting. If the autoradiography reveals the presence of newer pigments in the painting, pigments that were not available at the time when the painting was made, that could be an indication of forgery. There is a way that can help us to identify whether in fact it is by the artist. What he used to do was he would take a little pin and he would stick it in the canvas and he would do that to establish the vanishing point to determine the perspective in the painting and in the drawing. So let's see if we can find a little pinhole. Yeah, a little pinprick right here. Do you see that? Yes, I do. I thought it was a flaw. No. If you look at the lines, they all converge and come to this point. Now that, of course, is not conclusive. There's a gallery in New York and there's another gentleman who will authenticate. But I think there's no question that this work is, in fact, by Edward Cortez. On this episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast, I'll be talking about the authenticity of the four Gospels. Since we don't have the original copies of the Gospels themselves, they can't be physically tested as in the clips you heard by those who attempted to authenticate works of art. So how can we know whether these documents, which lie at the heart of the Christian faith, are actually what they claim to be, namely genuine eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, as opposed to some kind of hoax or ancient forgery? My guest for this program is Dr. Lydia McGrew, who has written a number of books dealing with this subject, including Hidden in Plain View, The Mirror and the Mask, and The Eye of the Beholder. She's also just released a new volume that we'll be discussing throughout this program, titled Testimonies to the Truth, Why You Can Trust the Gospels. I first asked Dr. McGrew to tell me about her latest writing project, along with some of the topics she addresses in it. What I do in Testimonies to the Truth is I take a lot of the material that I've developed in my more, you know, sort of scholarly books that are much thicker, and I add material to that, but I'm pitching it at a popular audience, um, and I cover undesigned coincidences, and I add some that were not in my whole book on undesigned coincidences. Tell our listeners real quick what, what an undesigned coincidence is. So an undesigned coincidence is an incidental interlocking between details that points to truth. So if you had two different witnesses to a robbery and one of them said that the robber's shoe was untied and the other one said that the robber tripped and nearly fell as he ran away, uh, that would be an undesigned coincidence. It doesn't appear that either witness is attempting to refer to the other witness's testimony, and yet the two things fit together, the untied shoe and the tripping. So that's just a quick example. Then I also added to this volume more external confirmations than I had covered, I believe, in any of my my previous volumes, uh, little incidental things that fit with information about the culture of the time and mm -hmm. the geography, that kind of thing. And then what I also did was something totally new. I put questions and 
suggested other resources at the end of every yeah, chapter and suggested answers at the end. So it's really pitched for individual and even group study, like a Sunday school class or a Bible study. Well, I love your approach and I've profited greatly by reading your books. And I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners how you got interested in this way of reading and studying the Gospels, where you're not only looking at the main spiritual point, but also at the subtle factual details that help us to evaluate the authenticity of these documents. How did you get interested in that? Well, I started off uh, a couple decades ago, really, as uh, an epistemologist. And I was writing with my husband, Timothy McGrew, uh, who is a professional philosopher. So I was very interested in how we know things and evidence. And at a certain point, Tim and I both realized that what we needed to do was to apply this kind of epistemological insight to specifically New Testament studies, because the New Testament is where we learn about Jesus' resurrection and how we can have a good argument for that. And we also became convinced that the reliability of the Gospels is deeply bound up with the argument for Jesus' resurrection Mm -hmm. to show that these accounts are not embellished and so forth. So we got into that and he got into old apologists like from the the 1600s 1700s 1800s and in, introduced me to that argument from undesigned coincidences that we just mentioned a minute ago and then that ended up dovetailing with some of my interests in probability theory and formal epistemology so i was publishing on issues like varied evidence and these kinds of things and their probabilistic analysis and then applying that to the gospels And I was seeing all of these connections. So I wanted to make that available to scholars and laymen alike. In my own background, I converted to the Christian faith primarily through reading fulfilled prophecy, you know, looking at Isaiah 53, Micah 5, 2, Psalm 22. Uh, I had a Jewish background. And so I was very interested in epistemology. For those who are listening who may not know what that word means, how would you give a quick definition for what epistemology is? It's theory of knowledge. So how you know what you know how you know what you know and whether you know. Yeah. So I was very interested in epistemology as soon as I discovered what that word meant, because I remember my non-Christian way of thinking, (laughs) and then something convinced me. And what I found was a lot of people easily dismissed what I was saying. So I wanted to focus on issues of truth and how do you make a case for something. But interestingly enough, a lot of the Christians that I was meeting were more experiential. So I I remember kind of being the odd man out. A lot of my friends were more about, well, you know, I just think you need to tell so-and-so that, you know, it's changed my life and it just makes me feel good, all that kind of stuff. But I was thinking, well, no, we need to show them that it's true. I mean, there's something factual here that is true whether we believe it or not or whether we feel it or not. Right, right. And you find that Christians will say that, and I've even heard them say well, just give them your experience because they can't argue with that. Right. And so it, it becomes really much more subjective and they feel safe saying, you know, they can't mm-hmm. argue with that. Well, fine, but it shouldn't move them to change their minds either. They're just going to say, well, that's nice for you. Yeah. And when you look at the New Testament of it, you don't see Paul focusing on experience. He focuses on the factual basis. If Christ isn't risen, our faith is in vain. Yes, ab- absolutely. Although, to be fair, I want to say that I think a lot of Christians 
they actually have more evidence than they realize. And so that's part of my goal is to access some of that evidence that people may have subconsciously mm. that they've never brought out to consciousness and saying, see, you, you know, you actually probably do recognize this quality in the New Testament documents that fits with truthful testimony. Let's try to bring that out, make it explicit so then you can actually use it when you're talking to your Hindu friend. Yeah, because it's not like a, a theory of knowing that you have to sort of learn. It's something you already do. I mean, this was the approach I was trying to show in my pilot episode. Uh, where I was trying to evaluate whether or not my dad's claims were true when he mentioned in passing that he saw, you know, Billy Joel perform at a piano bar before he became famous. So I was trying to evaluate that claim. And then when things conflicted with that claim, things I was able to discover online, I started doubting his story. But then as I listened closely to many of the details of his account, I slowly discovered that his claim was not only credible, it was actually the best explanation of all the available facts. But it was that slow digging into the details like your book is setting forth. Yeah, and I loved that pilot episode of yours, Shane. That was really fascinating. And one of the things it highlighted was that harmonization, which was really in the end what you were doing, is a responsible historical practice. I mentioned that in my chapter of this book on reconcilable variation. The skeptic will say, oh, there's a contradiction here. And then you'll say, well, you know, not necessarily. And you'll show how they could fit together. And they'll say, oh, you're just a desperate apologist. That's a religious commitment you have. And that's why you're doing this. But your example of your dad and the piano bar shows that actually it's it's responsible. And actually, it's often how it, it really turns out to be that the person who says something that might at first glance seem to contradict some other information is actually telling the complete truth. And you're just being a careful historian to find that out. Yeah. I mean, when he mentioned things like uh, he remembered being at a bar that was on the corner of Western and Wilshire, that was conflicting with all kinds of available facts I was able to find online. So I just thought, okay, maybe he's remembering a different event. So I was, it was okay to be skeptical. You know, I could have had the confirmation bias of, well, my dad said it, I believe it, that settles it. Right. And, you know, I'm just going to go with family tradition, what I was raised with, whatever. But instead, I just followed the evidence. And when I discovered that Billy Joel himself said, yeah, I wrote this song when I was performing at a piano bar on Western and Wilshire. And I thought, what my dad said was exactly right. And it's the people online who were yeah. who are confusing things. <laughs> right, right. So that wasn't desperate at all. That was actually accurate um, for you to say, hey, turns out my dad was right. Not that you were going to, you know, your whole life was going to be crushed if right. your dad had made a mistake, but uh, it, it just did turn out that he was right. And that's a quality we often find. That doesn't mean that witnesses never make mistakes. Of course, they sometimes do. Um, your dad was fallible. You weren't claiming that your dad was inerrant or something. Right. But they also sometimes surprisingly get things right uh, when it might have for a, a short time appeared that they were getting them wrong. And that's what we often find in the Gospels as well. Yeah. So you write in your book, you know, what you need is the ability to dig in and pay attention to details, seeing how they contribute to the credibility of the document. And when you do this with the four Gospels, you say that you end up finding a texture that is almost impossible to imitate. I think one of the challenges with this particular approach, Lydia, is that Jesus is such a compelling character that many readers, even after a lifetime of study— have never really noticed some of the details that you highlight throughout your book. Do you agree with that? That that's one of the the challenges to this approach. 
Yeah, I, I do agree. And um, the fact that it's something that readers, even who are very familiar with the Gospels, may not have noticed some of these things before, I think is evidence that the authors are not doing it in some kind of hyper-subtle hoax-like way mm. to get people to believe something that's not true. That would be extremely hard for them to do, and it's not the kind of thing that hoaxers generally do. So if something has gone unnoticed, even among students of the Gospels for quite a while, but then it makes beautiful sense once you bring it out, that's a mark that the authors are just referring back to the truth of Jesus, what he said, what he did, and so forth. Not that they're saying, hey, you know, I'll put this little thing in, and maybe 2,000 years from now somebody's going to notice this. Not at all. That's way harder to believe. It's almost like a Cartesian deceiver scenario or something. Right. I once sat next to a young man on a plane who was heading for boot camp. And at one point, he opened up his pocket New Testament and began reading the Gospels. And as he was about to close the book, I said, hey, can I show you something interesting? You know, basically, I was highlighting one of these small little details of the narrative that pointed to the authenticity of this particular gospel. And after I pointed it out, the young man looked at me and he said, you mean this is true? This really happened? Mm. So I think what happened is that he was raised in a religious home in which reading the Bible was a kind of spiritual discipline, but he was never actually taught that the story of Jesus was actually grounded in reality. And in fact, that very suggestion was kind of shocking to him. Wow, that's amazing. And it's exactly the opposite of what skeptics will usually assume. They'll accuse people like you and me of being, quote unquote, fundamentalists that were just believing this because we were raised in a religious background. But actually, this kind of historical testing isn't even always present in a very religious background. Yeah. So earlier in your book, you say that the Gospels get hard things right about the customs and culture of the highly specific time and place in which Jesus ministered. The confirmation of these details shows us that the authors were not making up their stories. Can you give our listeners an example or two of what you're talking about there? Yeah, and we'll probably talk about a lot of these today. So here's just one. Uh, In Matthew 23, Jesus is really telling off the Pharisees, you know, woe unto you Pharisees. And one of the things he says is that you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you neglect the weightier matters of the law, which are justice and righteousness. So this tithing mint and dill and cumin, so these are herbs, they don't weigh very much. We find passages in the Talmud that there actually are these rules. They're like IRS rules for taxes. Seriously, um, if you grow the plant for its seeds, then you only have to tithe the seeds. You don't have to tithe the plant. Or if you count it out into your lap, then it's subject to tithe. It's just all of these crazy little nitpicky rules. And dill is mentioned. Common is mentioned. And so that is this note of authenticity in Jesus berating the Pharisees where he's saying you're you're worrying about these lightweight things, but you're not worrying about the heavier things of the law. And, and that actually is sort of a twofer because not only does the tithing of these little herbs fit together with the time period, but that contrast between the literal lightness and the metaphoric heaviness in Jesus' words fits with his character and the way his mind works in other passages mm-hmm. in different Gospels. Now, in both Luke and John, Annas and Caiaphas are each presented as the high priest at the same time 
And some critics have argued that this is actually a mistake. For example, you quote a 19th century skeptic by the name of Robert Taylor as saying, quote, any person acquainted with the history and polity of the Jews must have known that there never was but one high priest at a time, any more than among ourselves that there is but one Archbishop of Canterbury. So how do you end up answering that objection? Right. It, it's so fascinating, that kind of you know rigidity. Um, in the Old Testament, it does seem to indicate that the high priesthood is for life. But we learn in Josephus, the Jewish historian, in multiple passages that the Romans recognized the political importance of the high priest office. So they did not hesitate to meddle in that. And they would depose a high priest while he was still alive and put a different high priest in there instead. And so we actually find shortly after the time period of Jesus, a thing that Josephus is describing where the Romans had done this. So there was one guy still living who had been high priest and then his successor who'd been appointed by the Romans and they were in competition and so forth. And Josephus actually uses the plural term high priests for both of them very much in the same way that Luke and John do. So we actually find that precedented and John especially is very casual about this. He says of Caiaphas, he was the high priest that year. Mm -hmm. So it's because John remembers that, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean he was going to be high priest next year. And in fact, Caiaphas was eventually deposed by the Romans. So it actually fits beautifully with the culture of the time that from the Jewish perspective, they might still think of a different living guy as sort of being like a professor emeritus might be in our own time as still being, in a sense, the high priest. And in the case of Annas and Caiaphas, John says that they were relatives, that Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Yeah, that's so, the only place where we find that information, that uh, there was a relationship correct. of father-in-law to a son-in-law. John actually helps us to understand Luke and Josephus because he's the only one that mentions that connection. That's correct. And that could make sense that instead of competing, like the two men that Josephus mentions, they actually worked together. You know, they worked in harmony. So they both examined Jesus. He's actually tried before each of them. But it just shows that John actually knows more than Robert Taylor about the uh, <laughs> actual culture of the time. Yeah. I'd love to get your take on this. I actually think there may be a critique of the high priestly family in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I mean, if you remember that parable, it's a description of not just a wealthy man, but a man who is dressed in purple fine linen, which is language that you find both in the Old Testament and in Josephus to describe the high priests. But also he had a gated home. We know that from John that the high priest did too. And then in that parable, this man, when he died, he said, well, I have a father and five brothers. You know, it's interesting is Caiaphas, father-in-law, had five sons. And then what happens is Jesus in that parable in the mouth of Abraham says, they won't even believe if a man should rise again from the dead. But John's gospel, that that's exactly what happens. A man named Lazarus does rise from the dead through Jesus' help, and the chief priests want to put him to death because it's making people sort of believe in Jesus. What do you think about that interesting comparison between what happens in Luke's gospel and John's gospel? I've always thought that as far as rising from the dead, there's a little zinger there, um, and it could be even Jesus' prediction of his own resurrection from the dead. But as you say, it could be a prediction of, of Lazarus. What I would want to do for the cultural background would be to investigate how 
widely things like wearing purple Mm -hmm. were in the culture, how many gated homes there would be, you know, that kind of thing to kind of get the probabilities. I definitely think the, you know, they have Moses and the prophets is a zing at the leaders for sure. I see that as a tie-in, as a theme in Jesus' mind between Luke and John that, you know, these guys are like devoted to the scriptures and yet they're not recognizing that he is fulfilling the scriptures. But Josephus does mention that the priests by and large were Sadducees, which means they denied their resurrection. So that seems to be something that's happening there in the parable of Lazarus as well. It does seem to be a critique of the Sadducean system. And in general of hypocrisy, and for example, I would say not giving to the poor. So Jesus is often emphasizing, like I just said, neglecting, you know, truth and justice and mercy. And that's what the rich man is neglecting. Right. A lot of Old Testament text about that. Right. Yeah. So how does the use of extra names in the Gospels show a casual accuracy in telling their stories? This is really cool, and this is something that I got from Peter Williams, and also it's discussed somewhat in Richard Balcom, and also goes back to the work of Tal Ilan, who is not a Christian. You know, she's an Israeli researcher into Jewish names at different times, and um, so what Ilan and her researchers did, they got ossuaries, uh, inscriptions, texts, et cetera, et cetera, and made uh, name statistical charts. What names did the Jews use in different places and at different times? And, and she's I, got like two th- over 2,000 names in that database. Yes. It's huge. Yeah, it's huge. And over many, many years, right. you know, because the Jews have lived in different places. And so they found which ones were most popular. And what we find is not only that the Gospels tend to reflect, although in a much smaller sample, of course, the relative popularity of names, but also that when they use the most popular names, they almost invariably will use something like a nickname or something that has the function of a last name in our culture. If we just said Bob, someone could reasonably say, well, Bob who, you know, or which Bob? There's a lot of people named Bob. So they do that. One of the things that you can do is go to the list of the disciples. It's just a little microcosm of that in the synoptics where it lists the names of all the disciples. And the ones generally that have some extra thing attached to them, like, you know, Judas or something like that, will be the more popular ones. So that's why that's needed, because that's a more popular name. And there might even be more than one person by that name within the 12 disciples themselves. You know, so Simon was one of the the very most popular names, for example. And if you go through the New Testament, if you include Acts as well, think of all the different Simons we have, you know, Simon of Cyrene, Simon the leper, Simon the tanner, Simon Peter, and so forth. And that's because you needed to say that because there were so many Simons. One of the things that I recall reading from Richard Bauckham's work, like he, he wrote an updated edition of that book in 2017, I believe, where he interacted with some of his critics. And I think one New Testament scholar by the name of Jens Schroeder you know, said, well, you know, when it comes to the names, the gospel writers wrote their narratives to give it a realistic effect. And Bauckham's response was that, I mean, if you and I were writing a book set in the 1800s, we might think to use older names, names that aren't as common today that were common in the late 1800s. But what Bauckham points out is that we wouldn't get them in the right ratio. 
And when you compare the Gospels and Acts together and you you look at the list that Tal Elan has put forward in her database and you say, wow, the most popular name in her database is Simon, and that's the most popular name in the Gospels and Acts. And, and you go down and there's an amazing similarity there that no one could know what that ratio would be when you put all the Gospel data together in one database. I think that that is true to the extent that we would expect it in such a small sample, that we expect that smaller samples will have a partial overlap with the larger Mm -hmm. sample space, but will also have partial divergences. So that also makes sense. The other thing that I think Falcon would probably agree with is that we have four different documents here by four different authors. And they're, especially with the most popular names, they're all showing this same thing. And it's so unconscious that to imagine them all doing this artless thing where they're just throwing in those disambiguators for the more popular names. And they're just all incredibly clever at this for realistic effect. It's just absurd. It's a non-starter as a theory because they all have to be equally good at it. So what can we learn by studying the names that we find in the later Gnostic Gospels? Right. And that is another way that we can see that this doesn't happen. So there's a gospel called the Gospel of Mary. Its author doesn't even know how popular Mary was, so he doesn't tell us which Mary. Um, whereas the the gospel authors, they are just artlessly using, you know, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, um, Mary of Magdala, and so forth, which is what these women would really be known as because Miriam was so popular, the Gnostic author doesn't know that. Or the the Gnostic authors may have totally weird made-up names like Nebro, which are just, I'm sorry, they were not first century Palestinian Jewish names um, because they don't know. They don't have a clue. So it's a completely unrealistic name situation in the Gnostic Gospels, except where they're just copying from the canonical Gospels, which sometimes they do. Yeah, whenever you find names that are not already in the Gospels, they are not names on the database of Jewish names in first century Palestine. Or they're a name like Mary, but with that kind of cluelessness about the popularity of Mary and therefore not even mentioning which one it was sometimes. Yeah. It's interesting to even just look at the difference between Judean-Palestinian names versus Jewish-Egyptian names from the first century. You know, you can be in the same time zone, but just slightly different geography, and you get a whole different set of names. But the names we find in the Gospels and Acts are exactly, they exactly fit that time period and that geography. It really shows that they're steeped in it. And one thing that you will find skeptics who will say, so what? That just shows that it's it was someone, you know, from that time period. It's of no significance. But you'll notice that if there's something that a skeptic does believe is an anachronism or an inaccuracy, right. they'll jump on that, which is inconsistent. If it's of significance, if they make a mistake, then it's of significance when in all these places they don't make a mistake. In fact, they get it right in this artless fashion. Yeah, that was the first thing that made me wonder, like, whether my dad's story was true. Uh, My brother pulled up Wikipedia and it said that Billy Joel performed at this piano bar at a certain time in Los Angeles where we were living in West Virginia. And I thought, hmm, the facts that I'm able to check out here make it impossible for this to be true. So that was when the doubt set in. But then when I discovered 
something my mom mentioned in passing. Well, actually, your dad went out to California while we were in Bluefield. And I was, Aha! <laughs> now I'm on the hunt because now it seems much more plausible. And that's kind of what we're doing here is we're saying, let's test these documents to see whether or not the claims they're making fit with reality. Right. I mean, it's you find this happening all the time. There's a case that I talk about in Testimonies to the Truth concerning an actor named Dirk Bogard. Um, and you can look this up and find it on YouTube where he talks about visiting one of the Holocaust camps shortly after the liberation by the Allies. And just, you know, what a traumatic experience that was to be talking to some of the survivors who are, you know, basically walking skeletons. Mm. And his own biographer, like the person who was officially tasked to be Bogart's biographer, I believe his last name was Coldstream, questioned that because the biographer did this sort of a priori history, like, oh, you wouldn't have just been allowed to just sort of, you know, wander over there. Like they would have had this under, you know, quarantine or whatever. But then when you talk to other people from the time, it becomes evident that especially when it had been newly liberated, you actually could just jump into a vehicle and go over there. It wasn't in that strict of quarantine. And there was even a witness who uh, seems like he actually saw Bogard there at the time. So we have to be really careful about um, jumping to conclusions that something wouldn't have happened or couldn't have happened. Yeah. Sometimes history is weird and strange and things that you wouldn't even expect end up being true. You just have to follow the grain of reality, even when it points out things that you would never have even imagined or things that seem like they couldn't be true. And when you dig then you say, hmm, looks like reality is stranger than I thought. <laughs> right. Especially when it concerns something a long time ago. Right. That's when you want to be even more careful. So we need to really be careful with the a priori history. Well, and the thing is that we because of all the interlockings, as you say, between the Gospels with each other and also with actual historical facts, whether archaeological, ossuaries, Josephus, because of that, I think we should give priority to the text itself and its claims rather than our own hypotheses trying to understand it. So you say, well, this couldn't have happened. Well, I think we should be more humble, <laughs> to borrow a word from my title, more humble about our theories and give more priority to this document that all four of these documents maybe we should just be a little bit more humble as we ask the questions, you know, how do we understand this artifact? Right. I'm trying to teach laymen and I'd love to influence scholars as well to think of these as historical sources in their own right, mm -hmm. not because of a religious commitment right. or an emotional commitment, but because they have earned the right to be considered historical sources in their own right. Folks, be sure to join us again next time on the Humble Skeptic Podcast as I continue my conversation with Dr. Lydia McGrew, author of Testimonies to the Truth, Why You Can Trust the Gospels. For more information about this podcast, simply head to HumbleSkeptic.com, where you can check out other episodes and read articles on a variety of different topics. That's HumbleSkeptic.com, and I look forward to being with you again next time as we explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. <laughs>